Hi, Pastor Chad Tucker here from Doxa Church in Burlington, North Carolina. To learn more about our new ministry and to find out about how you can partner with us, visit us online at doxaburlington.com. That's D-O-X-A burlington.com. We hope you enjoy the message. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, we're just kind of taking our time and walking through. We're in the prologue still, even after all of these weeks. But I think our study and time in God's Word has been very fruitful. In fact, God promised that it would be, and He certainly has not let us down uh, thus far. For example, it says in Revelation uh, chapter 1, Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And we certainly have been blessed reading it and hearing it read. And I think we've been blessed to just unpack and to study God's Word, um, kind of verse by verse, phrase by phrase. There are a couple pictures that we use here at Doxa to kind of help us understand our approach to God's Word. Um, one, I, I kind of picture like walking through the creek and, and turning over stones and seeing what comes out. Sometimes a little crayfish will come out or on occasion you'll see a trout or something over here. Uh, occasionally you'll pick up a beautiful stone that you want to keep and things along those lines. So so in a sense, what we're doing is, is we're walking through a creek and turning over stones and seeing what comes out. Another way to look at it, though, is, is kind of um, like digging for gold, digging for precious treasure. This is is God's Word, and we want to mine God's Word. We want to mind, M-I-N-D, means we want to pay attention and obey it, but we want to mine God's Word for the treasure uh, that it is. And part of what we're doing, what we've recognized in the book of the Revelation, is that four out of five verses are a direct quote, an allusion to, an illustration of, or refers to something that happened in the Old Testament. And one of the ways that we find that makes great sense to study God's Word is as we come across these things, rather than just glossing over it, let's stop and let's mine, let's dig right here and let's see even greater meaning and significance than what we might see with just a glossary reading or cursory reading and trying to cover so much at, at one time. Now, when I say let's mine it, I'm not saying let's add to God's Word and let's put our own thoughts in there. What I'm saying is is let's dig and see where this verse is in other places. Let's dig and see what Jesus meant. And let's ask the question, why would God place this verse in its context there? And there's always there's always one answer, which is God is God and He can do whatever He wants to do. But there's another answer that says that there's some logical reasons why God placed what He placed there. And as we begin to see the fuller meaning uh, in addition to the to the surface reading it just adds value and adds significance it helps us to worship God in spirit and truth and helps us to grow in our understanding of who God is so we're in the prologue we've been in the prologue for many weeks and now we've made it down to verse 7 the prologue is revelation chapter 1 verse 1 down through verse 8 um, we are in verse 7 and we will be in verse 7 for a couple of weeks a couple of weeks uh, in addition to today. There's just so much there. 
This also is the first place that we begin to see Old Testament passages and Old Testament references brought into the book of Revelation. So today we're going to look at the first time that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John writes words given to him by God with a um, a direct quote from uh, the book of Revelation. And I think we're going to see even significantly why God chose this verse and why he chose this verse to be first. So in order to do that, we're going to read Revelation chapter 1. We're going to spend some time in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. We're going to come to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to look at some verses there. And then we're going to tie it all together in the book of Revelation. Okay? So that's kind of our journey through God's Word today. Probably bring some other things in there. Y'all know how uh, I am. But in general, Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7, Matthew chapter 26, and tie it all together in Revelation chapter 1. So let's begin by reading uh, verse 7 and verse 8. And so we can have the background of the verse in mind. And then let's um, ask some questions of the text and go in and study it for uh, ourselves. Revelation chapter 1 verse 7. The Bible begins with the word behold. Behold, he is coming. He is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will well on account of him, even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray together. Our Father, I pray that as your word goes forth, that we'll indeed do what you have promised, and that is that it will accomplish all that you intend for it to accomplish. Your word never goes forth without accomplishing its purpose. So, Father, I pray that your word would accomplish its purpose in our presence today. And, Father, we pray for pastors all across our city and our state and our nation. Lord, everywhere that the word of God goes forth, may you honor the preaching and teaching of your word. And may your word fulfill its intended purpose that souls would be saved, lives would be changed, the kingdom of God advanced. Disciples matured and multiplied for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Here in verse 7, the Bible begins with the word, Behold. Oftentimes when we read through the Bible, we come across the word behold, or in uh, Yolanda and Darlene's translations, it says look. That's what behold means. It means look. It's one thing for me to say, hey, y'all look over here. There's something interesting on the side of the road. And God's saying, look, because I want you to pay attention to what's coming next. Anytime we come across the word behold in God's word, we that that's kind of telling us, hey, we need to stop. We need to pause. We need to take a look. It's God saying, don't miss this. What's what? A, all of God's word is important. Don't don't get me wrong. If God didn't say behold, it would still be God. 
God's word and it would all still be true and valuable. Whether God says something one time or he says something 25 times is insignificant. If God says it, it's worth noting. But there are times throughout God's word that he captures our attention and he says, while you're reading, when you come to this, I want you to stop and I want you to pay attention. It's almost God putting his finger on the text and saying, stop, pay attention right here. Stop right here. This is vitally important. And he uses the word behold, translated look. Uh, in fact, this word is found 26 times in the book of Revelation. 26 times in the book of Revelation alone. And I promise you, at each step along the way, as we get there, we're going to stop and look and behold what it is that he is talking about and what he's trying to draw our attention to. So here in verse 7, he says, Behold, behold, stop, look, and pay attention. By the way, sometimes God says it. Sometimes Jesus says in the book of Revelation. Sometimes an angel says it. Sometimes it's just written in there. John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote it. But in each and every one of those 26 times in the book of Revelation, it's vitally important that we just pause and stop and look and say, Slow down. God, what are you trying to show us? And what are you trying to tell us here? In this particular case, though there are an innumerable number of references to the Old Testament found throughout the book of Revelation, as we will see, this church is the very first one. It's the very first one. And because it's the first one, I think it's important for us to stop and and ask this question. A great way to study God's Word is to say, okay, God, why would you choose this Old Testament reference to be the first one? So before, whenever I would be reading along, I would just come and I would be reading and I'd be saying, okay, it's a part of the prologue. Let's get to the good stuff, right? Or I would say, yeah, 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 I know that. Behold, he's coming to clouds. Yeah, yeah, whatever that means. He's going to ride in on a cloud. Um, you know, probably going to have an angel playing a harp with some wings or whatever and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and I would just kind of go over it. This means he's coming back and, and that's the end, right? Christ is coming. We know Christ is coming. Let's, let's get on to the good stuff. But because God says, behold, I think it's important that we stop and pause and consider. The other thing that draws my attention is when we look at this, I don't know how it is in your Bible, depending on what translation you have, um, it may be set apart differently. Uh, if you have the New American Standard, it'll be all in capital letters. Uh, others of you, if you have a, a, a reference Bible, it'll have a little teeny tiny letter there that says, hey, there's some more information that can be that can be found. And anytime you have that, if you're studying God's Word, it's it's good to to be able to pause and say, why why uh, did the publishers of this Bible redirect us, or why is it pointing us back to the Old Testament? Why do we need to see uh, this uh, here? And it's a great way to study. You'll find some great things, as I think that you will see uh, here uh, today. So he says in verse seven, "Behold, he is coming with the clouds and." Every eye will see him. Every eye of the saved, every eye of the lost, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Let's take a look at this phrase, behold, he is coming with the clouds. And let's kind of trap this down in God's word. And let's see if there's some, if it gives us any insight into why God may use this particular phrase and why he would use it initially. 
So with that in mind, let's go back to to Daniel. Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2 is where we're going to uh, take a peek on our way to Daniel chapter 7. When we get to Daniel chapter 7, it'll kind of, this first part will really kind of begin to connect and, and make sense. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel, um, the, the children of Israel, um, they were in the promised land. And rather than loving God and serving God and worshiping God and enjoying the promised land, they rebelled against God and God sent prophet after prophet to warn them. And the truth of the matter is, they're no different than we are. We oftentimes are very stubborn uh, and and set in our ways. You're going to do things the way that we want to do them. They refused to repent and return to God. Oh, they were still worshiping. They were still going into the temple. But even in offering up their sacrifices and doing all those things, though they were going through the motions, their heart was far from them. And then it got to the point where they were just doing whatever they want to do and live however they want to do. And God sent prophet after prophet, including Jeremiah, and said, Look, if you do not repent and return, we're going to send the Assyrians in. The Babylonians are going to come in and they're going to carry you away in what the Bible calls the Babylonian captivity. And just like that, they did. God sent them in. They killed a lot of people. They took over the land. They destroyed it. And they marched them away into the Babylonian captivity. There in the Babylonian captivity, you have Daniel. Daniel's living in Babylon. He's living in a foreign land. Daniel is a prophet. He's a one of the major prophets. The Bible has major prophets and minor prophets. Uh, and the only difference between those is not the calling or it's not the significance of the ministry or even the geographic location. The difference between a major prophet and a minor prophet has to simply do with their writing ministry. Those like Ezekiel and Daniel and Jeremiah and Isaiah who wrote long books of the Bible, we consider those to be the major prophets because their writing ministry was great. And then those like, you know, Amos and Obadiah and Jonah that have wrote the short books of the Bible, they are the minor prophets. So Daniel is a major prophet. And really, Daniel writes a lot of things related to the end times and we'll refer to a lot in the book of Daniel in our study of the book of Revelation. But in Daniel chapter 2, what we see in, in, is we see that, that the king, Nebuchadnezzar, had a dream. We see this in chapter 2 of verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, and I always remind people it's Nebuchadnezzar, it's not Nebuchadnezzar. I know how some people think, you know, evil, wicked king. And Ch- but anyways, it is Nebuchadnezzar, not Chadnezzar. Um, he has this dream. And when he awakes from this dream, it's, it happens so much like you and I have, where you're like, I know I dreamed, but what was the dream? I don't really remember all the details. In fact, Michelle and I have had conversations where I've said, I had this dream last night. What did you dream? I don't really remember. I just remember that it was significant. Well, what the king wanted to do was he not only wanted to remember the dream, but he wanted to understand the significance and the interpretation of the dream. He knew the dream was significant, so he brought in his people to interpret the dream. And they said, okay, king, we can interpret the dream. Just tell us what the dream is, and we'll interpret it and tell you the significance of it. And he said, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. 
You tell me what the dream was and you give me the interpretation of it. And they said, oh, king, we can't do that. And he said, well, we're going to kill you then. If you can't tell me the dream and the interpretation off with your heads, you're, you're done. And so they were fearing for their lives and cowering. And God came to Daniel and God said, go to the king. And basically what God did was God gave Daniel both the dream and the interpretation of the dream. Now, just to be clear here... um, God is able and capable, and that is clearly how He worked in this particular incident at this particular point in time in history. I don't think that the principle from God's Word is is to write down your dreams and find meaning, significance, and value in every one of them. Certainly in some cases, God may may uh, give you some insight or understanding or give you some direction there. Clearly the book of Psalms says, and I have experienced this in my own life, we'll have a difficult decision to make. And, and Michelle's like, what do you want to do? What do you think about this? And I'll say, right, what do you ever say? Let me sleep on it. And then through the night, you kind of turn it over in there and you wake the next morning. Oftentimes, you know exactly what it is that you're supposed to do. That's not necessarily God coming in and giving you the answer and speaking such as this case but this clearly is a particular point in time in history when God did just that so what we see is is we see in Daniel chapter 2 verse 5 Daniel chapter 2 verse 5 the king answered and said to the Chaldeans the word from me is firm if you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. That's pretty clear. You're not going to survive that, right? Not going to survive that. But as we get over to chapter 17, then God reveals Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He reveals the dream. So he reveals the dream and then Daniel interprets the dream. And we see this interpretation in chapter 2, verse 31. Daniel said, because God gave this to him, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. You, The head of this image was of fine gold. So he sees this image, he sees this statue. The head is of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, and its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Broke them in pieces. So he goes on to interpret the dream, and basically what he does is, is he interprets the dream to be, just like that statue has four parts, those four parts are the, are, represent the four worldwide kingdoms that would come upon the earth. And these would be Gentile kingdoms, Gentile kingdoms. So the first, the head of gold, would be the Babylonian kingdom. 
The Babylonian kingdom is the one that Daniel lived in that Nebuchadnezzar reigned and ruled over. Nebuchadnezzar came in. He took over Jerusalem. He basically ultimately reigned and ruled the world until the second kingdom came along, which was the kingdom of the Murds, the uh, the Persians, and the Medes. The Persians and the Medes came, and they overtook the Babylonian, and they became the worldwide empire. And they were the worldwide empire for a while. Uh, and then Greece came in, and you had the, the Greek world, and the Greek world was the worldwide. And I'm giving you, I mean, things that happened over a long, long time. But the Greek world was the, was the worldwide empire, if you would, until the Romans came in. So for a period, you had the Greco-Roman world, and then it ultimately became the Roman Empire, which ultimately went away uh, as well. And basically what this is saying is, is there are four kingdom, worldwide kingdom empires, empires. Now, it's not, it's not talking about ones that would rise to power in this particular part of the world, like the British Empire, things along those lines. These would be the worldwide empires, and there were four, and there were only four, and by the way, all four of those have already, if you will, been crushed or cut down by the stone that no human hand had, uh, had carved. If you were with us in our studies in the past, you remember from Genesis chapter 49 verse 1 that there in the prophecy that there is a shepherd, a stone of Israel who is coming. And we we traced this out and we saw that the stone of Israel would ultimately be Jesus. He would be the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense, but he'd also be the rock of our salvation. And depending on your relationship with Christ, whether he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense or he's a precious stone, cornerstone, it's the same stone, it's your relationship with God that determines whether you stumble over the stone or the stone stumbles over you ultimately in judgment throughout all of eternity. So in chapter 2, we, we're introduced to this statue and this statue that's there. Now, one thing that I can promise you and tell you, when you look at these precious stones, this would the, look at the, the, the description of this statue using gold and silver and bronze and things like that. That would be the way that the world would see them, not the way God would see them. Because when you get over to Daniel chapter 7, you run over, just turn to the right in your Bible, Daniel chapter 7. We have another vision, and this time, this vision is of four beasts. So in Daniel chapter 2, you have this statue with the four parts. Here in chapter 7, you have these four beasts or these monsters. Now, this would not be like monsters ink monsters, right? These aren't friendly monsters and things like that. These would be beasts and they would be something to be uh, fearful of, fearful of. In Daniel chapter 7, uh, verse 9, the Bible says this, And as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was, was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And this is just the, the way in Hebrew to say an innumerable number of, uh, of uh, beings. In this case, they're angels that were there. You couldn't count the number of angels. It's not saying a specific, it's just saying a great number. Myriads of myriads, it would, it would be how some translations uh, would say it. And they stood before him, and the court sat in judgment, and the books 
were opened. Daniel said, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season of time. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's where we we get our phrase. Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 we get our phrase from the book of Revelation chapter 1 where he says where he says here verse 13 I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Now, in Daniel chapter 2, the stone came and crushed the kingdoms. In Daniel chapter 7, and what we're going to see is, if there's a little horn, the little horn is the Antichrist. The Antichrist comes on the scene. He's going to be a little horn. He's going to be little in power. He's not going to just, uh, he's not going to just appear in the sky as something not there. When the Antichrist comes, the Antichrist is going to be born. And he's going to have to grow and mature. He could be, he could be alive today. We don't know that. If he is, he's not on the scene in terms of the worldwide scene, but he's going to be born and he's going to be some type of world leader. He's going to be some insignificant power and then he's going to rise to power and rise to rise to the throne. And so what's going to and, and, and rise to the power that he has and, and, and all those things. So what we see in verse 12, it says, as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. So you have these kingdoms, these four beasts, they had power and each of those powers were taken away. God God is ultimately going to come back. He's going to place his feet, as we've seen before, in uh, uh, on the Mount of Olives. The world's going to split. Christ is going to come, and he's going to reign and rule. And when Christ comes, all the kingdoms of the earth, including the four major kingdoms in in, in the history of the, the worldwide kingdoms, are ultimately all destroyed, and Christ is going to reign and rule. Now think about this. When Daniel is writing this, Nebuchadnezzar is the world leader. He has no clue of the other kingdoms that are coming. From Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, he thinks he's going to be the worldwide leader and he's going to dominate the world as long as he wants to. And ultimately, he's cut down. The Medes and the Persians are cut down. That would come later. The Greeks are cut down. And ultimately, the Roman Empire are cut down. And by the way, when this one, the Son of Man, when he comes on, even though this little Antichrist, this horn is going to come, and, and he's going to take over, God's going to grant a season of power and authority to him. But when Christ returns, Christ is ultimately going to kill all of the beast and take the Antichrist and the devil and cast them into the lake of fire. And so here's this one in chapter 7 verse 13. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came into the ancient days. He came into the presence of God. And rather than God casting him out and God saying get out of here. You can't be here. You don't deserve to be here or anything along those lines or God consuming this one with his holiness which by the way apart from Christ that's what would happen to you and I if we entered into the presence of God 
without being clothed in the righteousness of Christ and our sins forgiven, if He doesn't see us through the shed blood of Christ, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, even we would be consumed in the presence of God because He is perfect and holy and just and we are not. This one comes into His presence. He comes into the presence of the ancient days and He was presented before Him and rather than being cast out or being consumed, the ancient of days representing God the Father gives to Him and to into Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. And His dominion is not a dominion that's going to come and go like Nebuchadnezzar's and like the the the, the Persians and the and the Medes, not like the Greek, not like the Roman. His kingdom is going to come. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So from the time Daniel wrote this, the Jews understood that the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, that when He would come, He would reign and rule upon the earth, and He would be given the kingdom, and His kingdom and authority and dominion would come forever. Whoever that is, the Jews to this day, though they rejected Christ as the Messiah, to this day they look for one to come and be the worldwide leader. Now that's interesting because this is the first place that it talks about the Messiah coming with the clouds and all that it means. With that in mind, go with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26 This is the arrest of Jesus. In Matthew, by the time we get to Matthew chapter 26, uh, uh, the, the, the miracles, the teaching, the disciples, the feeding of the 5,000, the raising of the dead, all of those things have already happened. By the time we get to Matthew chapter 6, Jesus has already instituted the Lord's Supper with his disciples. He has already gone to the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed. He has already been arrested. So this is during the illegal trials that ultimately convicted Jesus and sent him to the cross. This is where we are in Matthew chapter 26. They bring Jesus in. Jesus is arrested and he stands before uh, Caiaphas. So in in Matthew chapter 26, verse 57, by the way, in verse 56, the, the Bible says, Then all the disciples left him and fled. So Jesus is by himself, and he's now before Caiaphas. Then those who had seized Jesus, they led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. So they have decided to put Jesus to death. They're just trying to find a way to do it. So they're going, do you know this man? What have you heard him say? Who can testify against him? They need eyewitnesses to testify against him. And so they're, they're going to kill him. 
They're going to kill him. They're going to get rid of him. They don't know who he is. They think that he's a regular common criminal that they're going to crucify. And they're trying to do it quickly because Passover is coming. Verse and, and so they were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. By the way, just a side note. If anybody was looking for you to see anything that you've done wrong, would they find anything? I know this, you don't have to look too far to find things that I've done wrong. But can you imagine, even Jesus' enemies could not find anything wrong that He's done. Why? Because He lived the perfect life that we could not live. And He died the cruel death on the cross in our place that we should have died. He was innocent and we are guilty. But God placed His our sin upon Him in order that we could be forgiven. So His enemies couldn't even come up with anything. Now notice what it says. Notice what it says. Verse 60, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward. Look in verse 61. And they said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said, you have said so. Now look at this. Here's Jesus at the end. But I tell you, Caiaphas, singular you, emphasizing the Greek. I tell you, Caiaphas, you have said so. And here he says, but I tell you, so here he says, I tell you, plural, all of you, all of you. I teach English at Community College International students. One of the most difficult things to get them to understand early on is that you can be both singular and you can be plural. And I have to understand from the context whether it's you singular or you plural. In the Greek, you don't have to worry about that. It tells you plain as day. I love that, the preciseness of the language. So he says, you have said so singular. He says, but I tell you, all of you, from now on, now look at this, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power doing what? Coming on the clouds of heaven. You know what Jesus is saying? All of them would be familiar with Daniel's writing. All of them would be familiar and know that the the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one is going to come and he's going to come on the clouds. And here Jesus is saying, not only am I God, listen, you will see me coming on the clouds. They understood exactly. People say, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God. How do you interpret that any other way? Well, Jesus really never claimed, I mean, you know, he, no, no, no. Here's Jesus saying, Daniel chapter 2 with the statue, Daniel chapter 7 with the beast, the one that's coming on the clouds. He's saying, I am the one coming on the clouds. And he says this, and you will see it. You will see it. Now, how do I know that? How do I know that? How do I know that they understood it that way? Because look what happened in verse 65. Then the high priest, he tore his robes and he said, he has uttered blasphemy. 
Beloved, if you and I, if you and I said, uh, hey, y'all watch me, I'm coming on the clouds, they might lock us up in an asylum, but they're not going to call it blasphemy. Why do they see this as blasphemy? Because Jesus was directly saying clearly, You've said so. Behold, the Son of Man is coming on the clouds. And they had him at that point, And they were going to off him and get rid of him. Now, why, why were they so mad? A couple things that I think is uh, important. And we'll tie it up in the Revelation and be done in just a few minutes. Here, first of all, Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying, Son of Man coming in the clouds, that's me. I'm it. But also, He says, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Now, what He, what he didn't say was, you're going to see it today. The fact of the matter is, is all of these people that were there on that day, the chief priests, the elders, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all who had colluded together for purposes of evil to arrest and to crucify Jesus, they have all died and gone off the scene. But I can promise you this, on the authority of God's Word, when we get back to Revelation chapter 1, look at what it says in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him. You better mark it down in your Bibles and in your heart of hearts. Either this is true or it is not true. And if every eye will see him, there are no qualification of those eyes. It doesn't say every Gentile eye or every Jewish eye. It doesn't say every Christian eye. What does it say? It says every eye, every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. What is God saying? Beloved, there are two groups of people in the world, and those groups of people, when it comes down to it, at its simplest point, those two people are those who are saved to know Jesus Christ, their personal Lord and Savior, and those who are lost. And what he's saying is, is whether you're saved or whether you're lost, you will see him coming on the clouds. It doesn't say whether you're alive or whether you are dead. You see, when when saved people die, they enter into the presence of God. Their bodies go into the ground. To be absent from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. So we would certainly expect saved people to see Jesus coming on the cloud. Whether we see Him from here when He comes back or we're with Him when He comes, we will see Him come. But it doesn't say saved people only. It says all people. When a person who is not saved dies, they go to a place. Now listen, I am not talking about purgatory. 
But they go to a place that's best described as Hades in the Bible. It is a holding place of torment, awaiting final judgment that Isaiah 24 says, which looks the past, is coming in many days. So they are in Hades being tormented, awaiting final judgment to be judged by the books, plural, of life, and waiting with the devil and his demons to be cast into the fires of hell forever. The good way to look at it is, is there's a difference between going to jail and going to prison. A lot of people go to jail on their way to prison. It's the holding place till they receive their final sentence and go ultimately go to prison. Whether they are in Haiti or they are in heaven, when Christ comes on the cloud, both of them will see him, including the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. All of them will see him, though they are dead now will see him riding in the clouds and they will see him when he comes and when he reigns and rules and yet they will not have the opportunity to change their eternal destiny the moment beloved you breathe your last You're not obliterated. You don't go away. If you're saved, you go into the presence of God and will see Christ coming on the clouds. And if you're lost and you're in torment in Hades, awaiting ultimate casting into the lake of fire, eternal punishment separated from God in the lake of fire, you will see Christ coming on the clouds. Mark it, beloved. It hasn't happened, but the optimal word is it hasn't happened yet. If this does not happen exactly as God says, you might as well take your Bible and throw it away. Because God said it, and if God doesn't get this right, then it doesn't matter what God gets right. You'll never, you, you won't, you don't know what's trustworthy. But you can cling to the book and you better know in your heart of hearts, standing in the presence of God, that you will see Christ coming, riding on the clouds. And either you're going to be with him and reign and rule forever or forever separated, but know for certain that you've rejected him. For all of eternity. Isn't it amazing? Isn't God's word amazing? It's not just the fact that Jesus can cloud surf. That's not what this is about. It's not just the fact that Jesus can control nature and ride. And by the way, this cloud is not the cloud in the sky. This cloud is a cloud of glory. It's a cloud of glory. That's what he was talking about. Riding in on the glory of God fashioned like a cloud. I mean, encompassed by God's glory. And he, folks, he is coming in. And Daniel prophesied it. Jesus said, it's me. It is so fitting that the very first Old Testament reference in the book of Revelation brings in Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 and some of the last words that Jesus said to those who would arrest him and crucify him would be the first reference in in the book of the Revelation unfolding the culmination of end time events. 
So where does that take us? I think it takes us a couple of things. I think number one is it, it reminds us of the trustworthiness of God and reminds us of the trust, trustworthiness of God's Word. How does this apply to me? How does this apply to you? It's simply, it simply is this. What God has said He will do. You can believe it. You can bank on it. Well, what has God said? God said that He would save from the guttermost to the uttermost those who would repent and believe that He would grant salvation to them, that He would give them the Holy Spirit of God, that He would endow them with spiritual gifts, and He would give them a home in heaven. And, and most of us here today have experienced that at some point in time in the past. What has God said in His Word? God has said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. I don't care what the dark days are that you're going through. I don't care what the things that you are battling. You are not alone. I don't know how alone and alienated and isolated you feel. You are not alone. This week, my parents live in Hickory. And this week, the mayor of Hickory been the mayor for 15 years. And from an outside perspective, everybody thought he was a great man, jolly man. had been battling depression and discouragement for so long. He took his life this week. He took his life this week. Folks, I don't know about his spiritual conditions. I don't know anything about him. Honestly, I've never met him. I just read the news story this week. But one thing I know is when you are depressed and you are discouraged, how you feel is you feel alienated, you feel alone, and you feel isolated, and you feel like nobody cares for you. And if you battle depression and discouragement, I want you to know based on the authority of God's Word that He says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Jesus was left and forsaken so that you and I don't have to be and you can cling to the truthfulness of God's Word. If God's Word is true about what's going to happen at the end of times, beloved, you can believe God's Word that is true in your life and what it means for you to this day. But you know, interestingly, the Sadducees that were there on that day, they were both Sadducees and Pharisees, and they hated each other. And they hated each other, and they worked against, and they would brawl between each other every chance they got, but they worked together to arrest Christ and to crucify Him and to see Him buried. Throughout the Bible, we see evidence that there were some Pharisees, such as the Apostle Paul. He was Saul, um, was one name. Paul was another of his name. God didn't change Saul's name to Paul. But Paul was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisee, and he was saved. And when he was saved, listen, he was transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the light of the sun. But folks, nowhere in Scripture do we have anybody, there's not an example in Scripture anywhere of one of of the members of the Sadducees who were Sadducees because they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spiritual life. They only believed in the first five books of Moses. But these Sadducees, there's not a single example in the Bible of any Sadducee within the page of Scripture ever repenting and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. What I want you to know and what I want you to understand is this. Is Christ is coming. And He's coming in the clouds. And I want you to be one who will rejoice at His coming. Anticipate His coming. Instead of regret the decisions that you made to reject Christ. And to reject Him. Denying who He is. The reality of the gospel. The reality of eternal life. Either with God or separated from God. Because on that day, saved people 
unsafe people will see him coming in the clouds. And it's our desire, if you are here today, that you will see him and rejoice and be glad instead of regret. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's not just about the fact that Jesus coming and riding on a cloud of gold, which he is. But Father, thank you that it's the ultimate fulfillment of your word. Daniel prophesied it. Jesus verbalized it. And in the days ahead, it's going to become a reality. Father, you have said so and you've said it clearly. And we eagerly await the day that Christ returns. Father, even as we've already read in the book of Revelation, the time is near. I pray, Father, that if there's one here today who's not saved, who does not know Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, that, Father, you have spoken to their heart, you've captured their attention, and you have sent them on a journey to towards salvation. And, Father, I pray for all of us Christians that are here, that, Father, that you would continue to encourage us and strengthen us, that your word is true and trustworthy, and we can believe it and we can cling to it, and we can boldly profess it and confess it and share it with others, that they, too, may come to salvation in Christ, and they, too, may become a disciple of Christ. So, God, continue to lead, guide, and direct us, and may your word go forth and accomplish its purpose. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Hi, Pastor Chad Tucker here from Doxa Church in Burlington, North Carolina. To learn more about our new ministry and to find out about how you can partner with us, visit us online at doxaburlington.com. That's D-O-X-A Burlington.com. We hope you enjoy the message.